Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Shanali Bassett yes, joins into the studio. Shanali, <laughs> we were just talking about how you cook me food sometimes and we use it. lots of Tupperware. I have so much of Shanali's <laughs> Tupperware in my cupboard that I've never returned. It's um, more like takeout containers, but... <laughs> I mean, whatever. She doesn't even know the difference. <laughs> yeah, Allison Williams walking in studio as well of Bloomberg Intelligence, also at shock at our lack of Tupperware use. Um, anyways, you guys don't want to hear about Tupperware. You want to hear about bank stocks and yes. that's where I want to go next. JP Morgan shares higher by get this 6.9% in the pre-market. Shali, let's start off with you here. What's the highlight with JP Morgan? They just dumped a lot of information on us. I'm writing my newsletter right now and I'm like the cherry on top of the cherry on top of the cherry on top of the yeah. cherry. I mean, JP Morgan with 23% returns on tangible common equity, blowing, blowing that out of the water, also increasing their expectations for net interest income this year. Uh, we have not seen that yet among the other banks. They're expecting or at least warning that rates could be higher for longer. They said it doesn't necessarily be need to be the case, but in, for a bank like J.P. Morgan, they would benefit more from something like that. We have seen what higher interest rates have meant for the rest of the banking system. So yeah. this could be a messy year ahead. Let's bring else. in Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks and Asset Manager Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. And I wanted to get your perspective since you cover this so closely more broadly. What's your kind of big takeaway now that we've heard from some of these big banks this morning? So the net interest income is really the positive story and, and most positive at, at J.P. Morgan, as Shanali pointed out. Um, I mean, those returns are really impressive. And, you know, the net interest income, we looked like it was peaking in the fourth quarter, but it got even better this quarter, and that was across the banks. The delta at JP Morgan is so much stronger, and really what we're seeing is it's the asset yields. So actually the cost of deposits, which is something we've been talking about, especially accelerating in the, the, you know, with the bank turmoil, those costs actually did come in higher than expected, but the yields are even better, I think, for both JP Morgan and Citi. They're benefiting actually from card. That's really the area of loan growth. That is the uh, class of loans with the highest yield. But they're also, all of these banks executing on costs as well. That was a positive story in the quarter, um, helping profitability. Lastly, I'll just point out reserves. Reserves are coming in higher than expected. Charge-offs, still better. So still good credit quality, but that's that's a negative in terms of the look ahead. Speaking of the look ahead, you know, you mentioned that credit cards, that's where the highest yield is for the banks. That means for the consumer, it's the highest price you're paying for debt. There's a sense that consumers are not too stretched right now, according to JP Morgan, but they've also said that consumers will hit a cliff at the end of the year. Realistically, can banks keep on making more and more money from credit card loans? 
I think this cycle is so different, right? Like, so we know it's so different. It's it, the, the pandemic was something unprecedented. And keep in mind that what we saw, right, for J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, one of the big disappointments in 2020 and 2021 was that those card balances were paying down. The consumer was getting healthy. And so the consumer came into this or recession, which I guess is, is still coming, but we're already, I think, st- thinking about it as if it's here, but came in in such better shape. So I think at the margin, that that's a little bit different this time. Um, but, but to your point, it is something to watch in terms of um, the consumer getting some better yield, finally getting more than zero on those deposits, but those who are borrowing are gonna be paying a higher price. Whenever these C-suite executives, especially from the banks, come out, I always think of like last summer, right, when we got the sort of weather forecasting. I always think of the hurricane Economic comment hurricane, from, yeah. from J.P. Morgan. Yeah. But I was curious if the, what specifically stood out on some of these earnings calls to you as far as the rhetoric moving forward when it comes to these chief executives and what they're expecting for the trajectory of the economy moving forward. They're still talking a lot about uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, if you looked at the numbers um, you know, JP Morgan did increase their guidance, but it still looks like it could be conservative. Uh, Citigroup and Wells Fargo, despite better numbers, not changing their guidance. And I think because they are being conservative, uh, because we really don't know. And part of the upside this quarter was, uh, you know, rates the the rates coming in higher um, than ex- expected, at least uh, on, on the short end of things. Um, as, as we know, longer term yields are coming down and there still is a lot of uncertainty. That brings me to um, another business fixed income trading, surprising in the quarter. Yeah. We think that people aren't going to extrapolate that to the rest of the year, but we really think that that can continue to surprise to the upside because of the uncertainty because of this unprecedented environment. Which brings me to, Shanali, exactly what you actually pointed out to me this morning, which comes to what Jamie Dimon said about rates. It is blowing my mind that he can actually say 6% potentially on the front end of the curve Mm. um, when we're barely uh, sustaining above 4%. I mean, except for the the earnings from today, we weren't even crossing 4% for, I want to say, at least a a couple weeks' time, really since the banking crisis. Now we're looking at 408 on the two-year yield. To me, also, then you have to kind of square that with the deposit flows, because even though you saw that major intake, I think you pointed out that he's still saying that by the end of the year, this is all going to reverse. He's even saying that the deposits that they took in in the wake of kind of this quote unquote banking crisis. Now everyone is disputing the term again, right? Three weeks ago, it was a full blown crisis. Now, who knows? It's turmoil. Soon it's going to be a hangover. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. But, But anyways, what he is saying is even those deposits for JP Morgan are flighty. And so, yeah, I mean, But that's just on the deposit story. I think on the loan story, it's very important also because he's saying don't call this a credit crunch and they're not aggressively tightening standards. You know, I look at that super closely. I want to say their loans, their um, total loans are slightly down. But uh, on the other hand, I look at their institutional trading book and how much risk they're taking on. Their value at risk is also down. And so uh, I, you know, again, these are not huge things, but they are the biggest ship at sea here. And so if there's any signs of contraction here from JP Morgan, you have to expect that to be multiplied by many margins at all the other firms. And Allison, where specifically are you watching? Because we only have about a minute left, but where potentially other cracks could begin to emerge as far as particular indicators you're watching when it comes to these banks. So I think that um, 
you know, commercial real estate, I think, is the longer uh, thing that we're watching. Right. And, we're, and it, it is good. We're getting some added disclosures today, but we're very, very early in that cycle. But I think that's what we're going to um, continue to be watching for the year. I do think, you know, after, earn, you know, we're going to want to hear from the banks next week, but we're hearing from the big banks, right? So yeah. I want to hear next week what's happening at these smaller banks. JP Morgan did gain in deposits. Um, is how much of that was at the expense of smaller institutions and will those smaller institutions be pulling back? Yeah, and that's of course going to factor into what we hear. I believe April twentieth is the day that uh, you see a lot of the smaller banks report, Keycore, uh, etc. Um, a lot to watch right there. J.P. Morgan shares still climbing, folks, higher by seven and a half percent right now in about less than an hour of regular trading. Allison Williams, Bloomberg's chief equity strategist, covering all those banks. Uh, we thank you as always, alongside Shanali Basic, our chief Wall Street correspondent. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Mari Shore. Uh, she joins us to talk about the retail story, senior equity analyst over at Columbia Thread Needle Investments. Mari, do you share the same view as Justice Sources? Is this something to kind of brush off? I think it is something to brush off. The results today from March retail sales were really not surprising. We know that the March period was impacted by lower tax refunds, lower SNAP benefits, and also unfavorable weather. But as we look forward and we see the weather turn and um, fewer headwinds from some of those transitory factors that I just cited, I think that there is reason to believe retail sales get a little bit better. On the other hand, I would say we continue to see the mix shift towards services away from goods and within goods towards needs over wants. And I think that that trend will continue. Breakdown more specifically, where we began to see a bit more of the weakness within retail sales, whereas where we still continued to see strength there, because obviously, like you were just mentioning, the whole when we're debating about goods versus services, still clearly we're seeing that theme among whether it's these retail sales reports and also these inflation reports, too. Yes. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. We saw it in the CPI data earlier this week, saw it in the retail sales print today. The the greatest weakness that we're seeing is in the bigger ticket durable goods categories like consumer electronics and appliances. And of course, those were some of the categories that were strongest during the pandemic. We're also seeing a slowdown in categories like apparel and home, although not as weak as what we're seeing in some of those bigger ticket durable goods categories, and still seeing relative strength in food. Um, And the consumer continues to um, absorb the inflation that the companies continue to pass through in the food category. 
Mari, how do you then square that with margins? Because we had uh, Stiefel's Barry Bannister, the chief equity strategist there, joined Bloomberg Television last week, and he said, look, profit margins have peaked for the entire decade. And yet this is a stock market that is trading on those margins. What happens then uh, if you do continue to see this deceleration in the retail consumer? How much real upside is there um, if you follow that train of thought? I think you will continue to see pressure in margin. Um, as I look across my coverage group, a lot of companies have easy comparisons relative to 2022, but over a three-year period, when you think when you think about the strength that they saw in margins during the pandemic, when demand far exceeded supply, the multi-year comparisons remain very difficult, and we know that they will recapture some of the benefits from freight, but I think they will continue to face pressure from higher promotions, higher markdowns, especially if demand continues to weaken. And for these companies, it's really all about the supply-demand balance of inventory. And again, during the pandemic, they were in a very good place where demand far exceeded supply. But stepping back, looking at these companies historically, they've always struggled to find the right balance between demand and supply. And so that should result in, I believe, continued margin pressure for years to come. And we have a little less than a minute left, but was there anything surprising to you into this report that a trend you haven't seen emerge that is a little bit different than maybe what we would have seen the past couple of months? No, I think everything um, was relatively in line with expectations. I would say the noticeable strength that we saw was in the non-store retail category. And of course, that was that was a category that suffered last year just from very difficult comparisons. But it seems like for most companies, and of course, Amazon in particular, they've really started to see the e-commerce part of their business stabilize. And I think from here, it's poised to grow um, at a more normal rate in the in the high single digit to low double digit range. Yeah, certainly something we're going to be keeping an eye on. Mari Shore, Senior Equity Analyst over at Columbia Threadneedle Investments. We thank you, as always, for the insight on a decelerating retail sales report. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I just find it crazy that we're talking about a VIX at 17 as a low volatility gauge, which is weird because a VIX at 17 is not supposed to be low volatility. That's actually still very high volatility relative uh, to historic norms. And then you have to factor in the bond volatility, which factors into the currency volatility. And it's the dollar here uh, that I think you pointed out to me. Yes. I was looking at the DXY in the Mm -hmm. terminal. So the dollar spot index when you're looking at that hovering around a one-year low creedy a one-year low it's wild i've actually been looking at the dollar the last few days and the biggest contributors outside of the easter holiday which the biggest contributor to that drop was the mexican peso which told you it was very low volume but since then it's really just been the euro strength in the euro which i think is interesting we're looking at a 110 handle and i want to say like two three months ago we're talking about parity on euro dollar so that's kind of a wild uh story who better to talk about the fx space than jane foley a true expert in all things fx she's the managing director and head of fx strategy over at rabobank jane a pleasure to have you on the show thank you for joining our all gals cast we appreciate that as always your take on the bear case for the dollar 
Well, thank you for having me. And, and actually, as we've been looking at these screens in the last couple of hours, we see the dollar pulling back a little bit of ground. So, yes, it has been on the back foot in, in the last few days. And certainly, I think as the market over the last couple of weeks has put distance between itself and, and the banking jitters of, of last month, we, we saw this movement back into risk appetite. We've seen stocks doing well and, and the dollar performing poorly. But, of course, this afternoon, we've had these new questions about, oh, Actually, is the Fed going to be uh, cutting interest rates before the end of the year? The comments coming from Waller, for instance, and that's something, his view is certainly something that rhymes with our view, that that sticky inflation is, is going to be persistent through to the end of the year. The Fed may not be able to cut interest rates. And if that's the case, actually the dollar may get back some ground. And I think we've seen a little bit of position adjustment this afternoon as the market feeds back into the, oh, actually, maybe the Fed is going to be a little bit more hawkish for longer. And that is something which I think the market's reacting to this afternoon. What do you think the risks are to your call? Is it just the obvious of what you were just talking about, where it comes to the Fed and the big question mark of whether or not that pause could potentially be coming in early May? Well, you know, I think there are various risks to this view. And and, and the biggest one is, is the one which the IMF alluded to earlier on this week, and, and actually various different analysts and, and, and commentators have alluded to. And this is really, as we've seen last month with, with the banking jitters, as we perhaps saw in the gilts market uh, in the UK last month after the mini-budget, the market's having teething problems. It's getting used to this environment of, of much higher interest rates, an environment where you do not have quantitative easing, where you do not have very, very cheap money, and the IMF talked about a, a plausible alternative view, and that is one where growth is dragged lower by weak growth in the major economies, and, and, and one where the markets are looking for the next weakest link. Where is that going to be? Is it going to be in autolos? Is it going to be somewhere else? And if that is the case, um, you can envisage a scenario where, yeah, the, the, the U.S., the Fed, may be cutting interest rates. That wouldn't be for very good reasons. And if, if the, the U.S., if the Fed were cutting interest rates because there was some sort of uh, stress in the market, that is not an environment whereby the dollar would necessarily be weakening. That is an environment where you'd see money coming in from risky assets such as emerging markets back into the dollar. And so from that point of view, that is a risk to our central view, um, certainly with respect to Fed policy, but not necessarily a risk to the view that the dollar could pick up further ground later on this year. Yeah, when the world's in crisis, buy American seems to be uh, the mantra that's been in play for decades on decades. Jane, walk us through then uh, the other side of the equation. I think when I look at uh, something like European currencies, for example, the euro, uh, the Norwegian krona, the pound even, it feels like we've seen iterations of this recessionary call where in a recessionary downturn, it starts off um, in obviously in the United States, but kind of lingers in Europe a, a little bit. This time, I want to say could be different in that the recovery in Europe could be a bigger kind of um, jump than we've seen in past post-recessionary periods, simply because of the carnage we've seen from the war in Ukraine and the recovery uh, in uh, commodity prices and arguably the sustainability of the consumer there since. What does that then mean for a currency like the euro or like the pound? Is 110 a ceiling or a floor for the euro? Um, you know, I think the market consensus sees euro dollar going up maybe to 112. I, I think that could be tough largely because of our 
dollar story. Um, but also in, in terms of the euro, you know, there is a fair amount of optimism there, particularly, of course, with respect to the ability of the, the central bank or maybe the necessity of the central bank needs to be to hike interest rates. It has been very hawkish. We have seen a lot of those hawkish views being reiterated. And, and certainly the ECB would like to be able to, to hike interest rates further in order to quash that inflationary pressure. But there is still a number of unknowns with respect to Europe. Yes, energy prices, wholesale gas prices are much lower. Thank goodness than they were at the start of the, the, the war in, in Ukraine. But there's still an, a, a, a fair amount of uncertainty going through next winter with respect uh, to that. So Europe certainly is not free from um, uncertainty. Now, with respect to sterling, sterling was the best performing T10 currency in March. Um, that, however, was a reaction, I think, to a slew of better-than-expected data. So the market's repriced for that. The UK, for instance, may be able to avoid technical recession this year. But even though the market's repriced to a better outlook, the outlook is still not good. So it's, it's less bad, but not good. And, and I think sterling or that, that position adjustment in sterling is probably more or less done now. I think sterling could struggle and, and probably will underperform the euro, we think, in, in the coming months. That's interesting, Creedy, because with a dynamic that could be risks to equities, the two things that have come up is different extremes when it comes to the dollar, or also if there could be, obviously, the extremes with oil as well. So those are two key factors that could affect equities. Yeah, something we're keeping an eye on. Jane Foley, Managing Director and Head of FX Strategy at Rabobank, we thank you as always, folks. Keep an eye on the dollar. Stronger today, will it stay there? You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Folks, we're looking at markets here that are a little bit risk-off, sort of. I mean, the S&P 500 is lower by three-tenths of one percent. I wouldn't call that a major sell-off. No, and I wanted to point out, if we're looking at regional banks, so the KRX index for regional banking, that's down close to two percent, but and obviously more regional focus. But if you're looking at the KBW bank index, which includes regionals, but as well as these bigger banks like JP Morgan, that's up more than one percent. So you're seeing a little bit of a divergence there on the financials, Creedy. Yeah, I love that you, you brought that up because the only sector that's in the green right now on the S&P 500 is the financials. Exactly. Um, and it's really thanks to just a handful of banks. But the question here is, what is the ripple effect to the regionals? Because at the end of the day, I think First Republic was supposed to be the first bank to report. It then pushed their earnings back to, I want to say the 24th, if I'm right. Um, and now it looks like the big banks are benefiting. The question is for how long? Uh, who better to ask than our regional banks expert, Herman Chan, senior analyst for U.S. regional banks and fintech over at Bloomberg Intelligence joins us here. Herman, your take on this, one of the kind of pieces of the earnings report out of J.P. Morgan, uh, City, Wells Fargo, that really caught my eye was J.P. Morgan saying, look, we're sitting on a, a lot of deposits. We knew that this was coming. But by the end of the year, this is going to reverse. Is right. it going to reverse into regional banks? It's going to reverse from two aspects. So we're seeing continued deposit uh, inflow into uh, money market funds. So that that will absorb some of the deposits that JP Morgan's probably seeing. And also some of those deposits can revert back once we, uh, we're, we're already starting to see the industry stabilize. Um, the, the 
emergency lending measures from the Federal Reserve, those actually declined again and the liquidity, the new liquidity measure that, that the Fed unveiled after SVB, that actually declined for the first time since the the inception of the bank term funding program in, in early March. So all those things point to some stability and, and the hope is that uh, for the regionals that some of those deposits that they that left in the first quarter does come back. And I just double checked. So First Republic, there was results. So they did get pushed back. It'll be Monday, April 24th is when they're going to. So we still have uh, a little over a week, obviously, till right. we get them. But when you're thinking about these regional banks, Herman, mm-hmm. what are you expecting that we're going to get with these results once right. they start rolling in? So we're going to expect um, some a lot of commentary on deposits and, and the stickiness of the deposits. PNC, the first regional, uh, reported today and, and showed some stability in their deposits, which was a great sign. And also, more importantly, probably, is the um, funding costs and how much do they have to pay up for a deposit. So there's two issues there. Um, the deposits that they're that that some of these banks are gaining are the form of higher cost CDs. So you have to pay up more for these CD balances and also um, the the zero cost deposits, those, those operating accounts, the non-interest bearing accounts, those continue to decline. So there's been a mix shift happening and, and also how much are banks paying up for to retain these deposits. So th- that's one of the factors that drove some uh, negative guidance for, for PNC for, for the full year uh, coming ahead. Well, fully coming ahead, I, I got to ask about uh, kind of buybacks for a lot of these regional banks here. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, if I was sitting on a healthy flow of deposits, um, which a lot of these regional banks are still saying, look, everything is fine, we're okay, um, and yet the shares are selling off as much as they are on Sympathy, I would dive into the market and buy back those shares. Is that something that we're going to see from these regional banks? It, it'll be interesting because uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, PNC actually just came out and said they're going to dial back some uh, buybacks given the market uncertainty for at least the second quarter. And they they took the liberty to say that they, they might change their stance going forward depending on how market conditions change. Uh, but uh, there there are some banks that still are sitting on really strong capital ratios, strong uh, you know, credit quality performance. So it, it's going to be a bit of um, a choppiness going forward. We could see some aggressive buybacks, but overall it's going to be um, maybe some conservatism from some of the larger ones until this uncertainty recedes. And where specifically when it comes to these regionals, are you keeping a close eye to monitor where other cracks could potentially be emerging for them in other quarters? Right. So uh, the the big uh, focus from a credit quality standpoint has been an office commercial real estate. That's something that, that PNC had talked about and gave some new uh, disclosures and, and a new extra you know, emphasis in their slide deck um, in the first quarter. Uh, we'd expect more of that, just focusing. The market's been focused on it, so we'd expect the banks to talk more about it and and what they expect from performance going forward, um, how much is re, you know, going to be needed to be refinanced over the next couple of years. Those sort of statistics will, will help um, alleviate or at least inform the market in terms of what the exposure is. Herman, you mentioned uh, the PNC earnings specifically. Can you put those into a little bit of context for us? PNC, in my view at least, is a little bit more well-known, a little bit more um, kind of protected than, say, your First Republics, et cetera. That's right. What is the broader read-through from the PNC earnings? Sure. the stock is down today, um, so it, it just seems like that there's a lot of negativity towards the regionals, despite a, 
a beat in, in the first quarter numbers. Uh, better performance from uh, um, deposits, I would say, but uh, the guidance w- was a bit um, was a bit negative. Uh, I would say that if if we do see PNC like the others show some deposit stability, that would be great. But the market's focused on what's ahead and in terms of how much do you have to pay up for deposits. So it could spell some negative revisions going forward and some net interest margin contraction for, for the regionals. Yeah, and if you're looking at PNC stock this morning, that's ticker symbol PNC. It's down more than 2% on Paceboard's worst day since March 22nd. But what about when it comes to some of these other smaller banks when you're thinking of like Western Alliance? Mm-hmm. How much concern is there still potentially lingering with these other banks and what potential problems could be around the corner? Right. Uh, I would say that overall, the regional banks are are probably out of the woods from a liquidity and funding risk standpoint. There's a handful of banks that we continue to monitor in terms of how how are they going to protect their deposit base. Western Alliance comes to mind, PNC, uh, PacWest comes to mind, and also First Republic. The, the banks that sort of operate on the West Coast and maybe have some exposure to, to tech or startup uh, deposit taking, those are the ones that seem to be more in the crosshairs and still have some question marks about how they're going to manage their balance sheet going forward and, and how drastically their margins are going to suffer. So PNC is already seeing a bit of margin pressure, but some of these lo- uh, banks that are in the crosshairs probably have more. And there's some unanswered questions as to how much and, and what they're going to do in terms of shoring up their balance sheet. Well, Herman, now let's talk about kind of what some of these regional banks are exposed to. Signature Bank, for example, uh, very famously exposed to crypto. And um, Barney Frank, uh, the creator of uh, the Frank Dodd Act, or one of the sponsors of it at least, very vocal on the board of Signature Bank, very vocal saying, look, we were targeted by regulators because of that crypto exposure. To what extent is that true? Yeah, um, the New York state regulators said that wasn't um, a, a factor in, in closing that bang down over that weekend after Signature's uh, SVB's failure. Uh, we've written about it. I, we would say the crypto issues didn't help their cause, right? Mm-hmm. Because there was already some compliance matters that they had to shore up in terms of knowing your customer and, and what sort of folks were operating within the framework of Signature's balance sheet and and the uh, real-time crypto payments network that they operated. So I would say that it didn't help matters at all, but really the the crux of the issue for for Signature was that they were facing a lot of deposit outflow um, given the concern um, related to what happened with SVB and some of these larger, chunkier deposits. Uh, they, they had the same thing, and, and that ultimately is what created the, the fallout and the closure from the regulators. Something that's come up in a lot of my conversations is trying to monitor specific data points, like, say, the Senior Loan Officer Survey, mm-hmm. which actually won't come because this is quarterly, right? right? Won't come until May 7th, so that mm-hmm. is after the Fed's two-day meeting, which is on uh, May 2nd, May 3rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, that's going to gauge bank lending and right. credit conditions. Mm-hmm. What do you think as far as if we're not going to get that until after the next Fed meeting, right. what else are you watching to kind of monitor where credit conditions stand? Yeah, it's going to be ta- it's going to be listening to to the guidance from these banks that are that are 
going to report uh, starting today and next week. Next week is the bulk of the large cap regionals that report. So Wednesday, Thursday are the big days. You should get some really good takeaways from in terms of their appetite for lending. And Wells Fargo actually said today that they were starting to be a bit more um, conservative with their underwriting uh, credit underwriting criteria. Uh, JP Morgan said on their on their call this morning said it's not a credit crunch per se, but it's more of a putting the thumb on the scale and being maybe a bit more cautious, but not uh, not overly cautious. So I, I think the, those types of anecdotes anecdotes will be something that we'll be monitoring. Certainly something we're keeping an eye on. It's going to be a very intense next week for Herman Chan. Is what his Super Bowl, I think. Uh, <laughs> so we are very grateful to have him around. Herman Chan, Senior Analyst, U.S. Regional Banks and Fintech over at Bloomberg Intelligence, walking us through exactly the ripple effects of this banking crisis turned turmoil turned hangover, uh, Jess. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, it's an interesting market day, but it feels like all the action uh, was in the morning. But then you look at some of the other stock movers here, Jess, Boeing catching our eye. It is looking at that ticker symbol BA down now about 5.4% on pace for its worst day since October 26. That day it had dropped uh, close to 9%. So seeing a bit of pressure still there on Boeing. Yeah, certainly something to keep in mind. And look, Boeing has had its troubles. It's also had the successes. And none of that has to do with why it's moving today. Uh, to explain the story, we bring in Bloomberg's Simone Foxman. She is all over it. We've really been covering the airlines head to toe for us on Bloomberg Television and Radio all week. Simone, lovely to have you. Walk us through what's going on with Boeing. Yeah, I seem to be an aviation reporter this week, but this is a really <laughs> Boeing-specific story. So there's a production issue on the rear end of its aircraft. It has to do with non-conforming brackets tied to the fuselage. Um, they're non-conforming, but this doesn't seem to be a major safety issue or else the FAA would be grounding these planes. So the concern here is how long it takes to bring aircraft in from the field to kind of address these non-conformity concerns. And there's really a wide window of what it could be because earlier this year, late February, we saw a non-conformity issue with the 787. Um, that was solved in 15 days, but previous issues took a year to resolve. Jeffries, for one, believes that Boeing will cut about 20% of its deliveries this year. And then that ties into how much airlines are affected. Southwest and United specifically have a lot of uh, Boeing orders they're expecting to receive. Overall, you know, if that 20% cut is what we see, then we see 80 planes not delivered out of the 420 that Boeing is expected to deliver this year. Anytime we see moves in these types of names, especially when you have Boeing, I obviously will think of its arrival. Airbus, and when it comes to these aircraft manufacturers, I mean, there's only so many of them, right? And so right. when you see a pullback like this, a lot of times when it's longer term investors that I'm speaking with, they'll use that as a buying opportunity. Do you think there's a situation here? I mean, just looking at where, if you use the comp function in the terminal for the stock year to date, looking at Boeing, ticker symbol BA, it, I mean, it's up about 6%, but looking at its rival, when you're looking at what's happening with Airbus, this is the US ADR, it's E-A-D-S-Y, it's up about 17%, Simone. Well, I mean, Airbus ha has right. just won the reputational game yeah and it resolved some of its issues with its own buyers you think Qatar Airways for one um, but uh, 
But frankly, this is going to add to concerns that Boeing doesn't have its supply chain under control. You know, that said, you believe in the uh, air travel rebound that we're seeing post-pandemic, especially with China coming back online. If you, if you think that Boeing can kind of engineer a turnaround, then perhaps this is a buying opportunity. Sure. So what are more of the nearer-term risks here when it comes to investors as far as kind of what is happening next? Well, I think a lot of the attention, well, look, Boeing, Airbus, these are sort of long-term plays where you want to know about the future of the market. Will they, you know, will airlines, you know, continue buying the sort of narrow body that are more flexible to fly around the world? I think near-term, when you think about aviation, though, it's all about what happens this summer. Um, Krita and I, in particular, have been talking about uh, American Airlines, Delta, a lot on TV this week, uh, and really what happens with the consumer near term. Do they see themselves as being confident and having enough money to continue flying as much as, you know, Delta, in fact, is hanging its hat on? You know, that's the near term concern when you're thinking about the trading in the next you know, couple of days, weeks, months. When we talk about just some of the broader moves in, in the space, aerospace and defense specifically, I'm obsessed with airlines. I think they're very cool. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're talking about Boeing, but another stock that's moving off the Spirit Aerosystems that makes that faulty part, SPR, uh, I believe, down far, far more. Um, Simone, talk to us a little bit about that stock. Yeah, I mean, I think if you you get find yourself in a situation where you have made a, a faulty part uh, and that's very that you're very reliant on that you're that that kind of complicates the relationship with you know the buyer, um, but you know I think for all these stocks and that's one that you know this part specifically very important um, for that company. But um, you know obviously that's a reputational damage as well. I think the idea from an, uh, from a Boeing perspective is certainly that you can move past this a little bit easier. They can find another supplier. They can um, p- potentially um, that it's not as much of a hit to their business model. Um, but certainly if this is a, a part that someone's relying on you for you on, you on um, then that's more problematic, I think. You were talking about, obviously, the airliners. So we did hear from Delta earlier this week, and obviously they still saw strong demand for the second quarter. So you would think that obviously could be a a key gauge for the consumer. But then on the other side of that, we did hear from American Airlines. And unfortunately, a profit forecast was disappointing. Where do you see things kind of headed when we're thinking more geared toward these airliners as far as, obviously, as things continue to reopen from the pandemic and people are traveling? But inflation is still a big key issue, right, when it comes to those prices. Right. I mean, the airline play at this moment is all about deleveraging, you know, pulling down the amount of debt you have so that in the long term you can um, you can pay lower interest rates, it, particularly if we're in an interest rate rising environment that's going to last for a little while. But you see things on their balance um, that they're going to have to work against like higher labor costs. That was something that was flagged both in uh, non, higher non-oil costs was flagged in Delta yesterday. American Airlines, we were looking at higher non-oil costs. United saying that its higher labor costs last month are specifically going to lead to the reason that it may report a loss. Um, that's a problem for the airlines. And then, you know, play that against the consumer that I was mentioning earlier. Is the consumer enough to offset some of the weakness uh, if prices continue to rise. Yeah, Simone Foxman uh, covering everything from the consumer to airlines to Boeing to engineering, I think somewhere thrown in there. Uh, We thank you. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jess, we're going to kind of go full circle here because we started off this program talking about banking stocks. We started talking about what the read-through is into the economy. And look, we're looking at S&P 500 that's down about six-tenths of 1%. In the green, though, is in those financials. And obviously the key question is still being deposit flights, uh, paying up for funding, looking at tightening financial conditions. But so far, when we're looking at especially these bigger banks, uh, it looks like things have been holding up a lot better than what people were expecting, obviously, for the first quarter. Yeah, and remember, one of the big concerns here is to what extent do we see that credit crunch? Jamie Dimon came out and said, look, we might not be seeing that credit. It won't right. be a credit crunch necessarily. Tightening lending standards, sure, does that even read through into the consumer? We still don't know. So a lot of the panic, perhaps um, a little overdone there. Let's get uh, some true expertise here. Hugh Van Steenis joins us from Oliver Wyman. He's a vice chair and partner, but he's also spent tons and tons of time really digging into the banks. He was a senior advisor for Mark Carney over at the Bank of England. He's worked over at UBS as well. Um, Hugh, a pleasure to have you on the show as always. Yesterday you came on uh, to Bloomer Television and talked about just kind of what the equivalent rate hike would be to accumulate all of the bank stress. I think you said anywhere from one to 150 basis points, excuse me, 100 to 150 basis points, excuse me, worth of a rate hikes. That's how much the financial stress uh, is showing. What is your takeaway from the bank earnings we got this morning? Uh, well, look, Chrissy, thanks for having me back on and a, and a terrific panel with um, Tom earlier. Um, look, I think this uh, it's one of the early signals. So, I mean, first, as Jess just said, I think that they're, they're, they're the super league of banks is pulling away. They, they seem, at least my hypothesis is, that they're benefiting from not only not having to pay up as much for deposits. I mean, the deposit beaters came through a little bit better today, uh, but also the deposits, they're benefiting from sort of a shift in deposits from some of the, the mid-cap banks. Now, obviously, the key question, as Jess said, is like how long this continues. I mean, I still fear that there will continue to be a bleed from the mid-cap banks uh, because the opportunity to switch from a couple of basis points to 4.8% in the money market fund as you heard with you know, BlackRock today, is just so appealing. Uh, but I think that that means that for the larger banks, I think that they're in a much more stable position, but obviously just looking around the corner, all eyes on credit, all eyes on the stickiness of that funding structure. Hugh, I know you were also tuning in to this great panel that Tom Keen was hosting. What was your sort of big takeaway from what you had heard so far on that? Um, well, look, it's, a, it's such a rich panel. I don't want to, uh, there, are, there are a lot of good points. But I mean, first, is, is, you know, I think there's two things here. One is, you know, what does this mean for the Fed call to these tightening of financial conditions, really um, lean against them? Or have we seen the final rate hike? Or is there, or is there only one more to come? Or will they carry on batting for more? And I think that's the, that is the big tough call. And, you know, yesterday, Chris and I were chatting about, you know, the parallel with Volcker, where after he had a, the largest bank failure in history at, his, at that time in 84, yeah, they did. They paused. They then put up rates a bit more. But within six months, they were cutting rates. And I think that that rate, that call, I think is really important. I think the second thing came out, as Mohammed was saying, was what this means for the kind of uh, reshaping of the financial infrastructure. 
you know, how will the system deal with less liquidity, with higher rates, with quite frankly a very uncomfortable shape of the yield curve for, for a bank to enjoy earnings. And I think that reshaping is something which we've only just started seeing today in the numbers. But I think is that's the real tension that as I engage with banks, is that focus about what, how sticky is this liquidity and how they're going to adjust. And then the third thing, which, the thing which didn't come out of the panel, at least so far, and obviously it was such a rich panel, I don't want to pick on them for not mentioning it, but um, is what does this mean for the kind of liquidity schemes the central banks offer? You know, Kriti and I were chatting about how the Fed's overnight repo uh, um, facility is de facto subsidizing money market funds. I mean, 40% of all money market funds are now being parked at the Fed overnight, giving them a huge advantage over the banks. And I think that's one area where I think it would be prudent for the maybe less the monetary policy guys, but the financial plumbers at the Fed to really reassess. I love that you brought up uh, the repo. And yes, folks, I do chat and nerd out with Hugh Vanstias on the <laughs> repo facility over at the Federal Reserve. Uh, that's what we do in our spare time. Uh, <laughs> Hugh, talk to us a little bit about um, kind of the comments that Jamie Dimon made this morning. Again, I'm, I'm going to kind of harp on what he says because so much of the market hangs on his every word. Uh, he specifically said that when you're looking at deposits, we of course saw this major inflow into the deposits uh, when you look at the larger banks. But he said, look, this is not going to last. This is going to kind of, um, you're going to end up seeing deposit outflows by the end of the year. Where does that money go? Does it go back into the regional banks? Does that, you start to see some sort of reemergence of confidence in that sector of the economy? Or does it go into the money markets and then straight into the repo facility like you just mentioned? Where does that money go? Oh, well, look, I think it's a great question. I think, look, I'm, with humility, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. Um, so look, I think first, um, the continued bleed from deposits into money market funds, I think is highly likely. And obviously, you heard Larry pick up, uh, think, uh, pick up on that today as well. I mean, if you take it, the banks have lost 900 billion uh, from the peak in the deposits. Roughly half of that loss was in uh, March. And the, the money market funds took in two thirds of what they lost. So that, that probably is still the dominant trend. And the difference between two basis points and 4.8 is so get big, it will tempt some companies. More for yield pickup because they're panicking about what's in the system. And I think that's consistent with what you know, Jamie was saying on his uh, call today. I think in terms of the mid-cap banks, I think it's a tough call because I think it comes down to you know, how they respond. Will there be you know, um, mergers? Will there be the stress tests that the, the Biden administration is proposing uh, help? How will the Fed facilities ease? And I think there's a, a complex run there, but I think it's going to, you know, whenever you have a, a shock like this, it typically takes quite some time to work through. So. I think the bank's treasurers and CFOs are going to be planning that this is easy come, easy go, and therefore they will be more cautious about giving it granting loans. And that's why, at a minimum, I think as we go into the fall, we have a credit squeeze. And the key call is, is that just is it a really big squeeze or is it a crunch? Yeah, Hugh, off the retail sales data this morning, we were looking at a two-year yield that has crossed significantly above 4%. We're looking at four, about 4.11, we'll call it on the two-year yield, the front end of the curve. Um, one of the arguments you made in your piece in The Economist, and I want to say in the Financial Times as well, <laughs> was simply that there needs to be more stress tests that take um, interest rate shock into account, and even that might not be enough. Jamie Dimon, again, we're going to quote him, said uh, there might be a, a scenario where the two-year yields could reach as high as 6%, that higher rates for longer could keep yields along the Treasury curve significantly higher than what we're seeing right now. Are the banks ready for that kind of move to the upside? Um, so, I th it's, so I think, it's, so I think, so first, um, I think it depends which banks. 
Uh, and I think what you're seeing here is that the larger sort of super league banks have, you know, might be bleeding some deposits because um, uh, you know, co corporate treasurers, you know, individuals are trying to just get chasing a bit of yield quite, you know, quite rightly. And I think what was interesting to me is that that yield chasing really accelerated when Fed funds hit about 4% last fall. And so if we do head towards six, Kriti, then I'm sure that would accelerate uh, in, you know, people looking for a, a, a better alternative. Um, but of course, you know, now that the banks have had this big shock to the system, they will be redoing their models. They will be thinking, even before any regulator comes to their door, they're going to be rethinking their own internal stresses. And quite frankly, many of them have been doing that in the last two to three weeks. So I think already that's why there's going to be less lending. I think the really interesting question, which you should, you know, which I'm sure you'll, you, you've picked up already, but with other uh, guests will be, you know, will the private credit market infill some of the gaps where the mid-market banks aren't going to be lending? And I think at particular around commercial real estate, there's going to be some really interesting uh, opportunities, um, you know, from this dislocation. I think some of the private market players will also be able to pick up opportunities. But I do think for the banks, it, they will be plenty more cautious going and, and obviously will need to stress themselves for a, a range of, of painful scenarios. Hugh, and as you were just talking about mentioning commercial real estate, that comes up in so many of my conversations as, oh, this could potentially be the next shoe to drop. What are you watching regards to that? And also even beyond that and other corners of the system that you feel like are showing some signs of potential weakness at this point? Uh, look, Jess, it's a, it's a great question. And like you, a lot of our com my conversations are around trying to segment this market. It's a huge asset class, and it would be foolish for us to say it's all going to be impacted. But if you slice and dice it, I mean, I'm coming across, you know, uh, asset managers and private credit managers and private equity firms who are really interested in refinancing or taking advantage of some dislocation. But, you know, there are two buts. I mean, one is the cost of capital has significantly increased and the terms of leverage may have deteriorated. So the actual, you know, the clearing value uh, can be impacted. But secondly, I think what we're all trying to, I mean, effectively from SVB onwards, what we're all trying to sift for is where are there some carry trades which have gone wrong? Or where are there some carry trades with weak hands? And I think particularly some of the office parts of CRE are an area which I'm sure you, Jess, and, and, and we are having conversations about, oh, where are the weaknesses? How's that vary by city, by location? Um, but but it's but that's that's one of the hot potatoes. And then obviously some areas around uh, some of the, the more recent, some of the vintages of um, private equity deals as well, where there need to be some refinancing. But as ever, you need to sort of sift for the weak hands and the, and the weak trades rather than think about the whole market. So this conversation about commercial real estate specifically, uh, you know, it, it's one that uh, several people have uh, brought up. We had uh, the deputy uh, chief economist over at Cushman and Wakefield, a, a massive real estate firm here in, in New York and uh, who has, of course, a presence across the country as well. And look, she said, yes, the commercial real estate piece of the equation could come under pressure, but it already kind of has for the last nine months. And a lot of that has to do with the extreme tightening you're seeing from the Federal Reserve, a point that Mohamed Elmarian made in that panel at the IMF with our very own Tom Keen as well, that because the Federal Reserve started so late, the moves were far more dramatic um, to, to the upside, something that has already been kind of caught in the commercial real estate space. Hugh, how much more pain is there really due in, in, in that part of this economy? Well, look, so I don't really want to profess to be your commercial real estate expert. I mean, I'm thinking about it from the point of view of the banks and how they think about their lending. Certainly, as I engage with the larger banks, there's, and also as you, as you talk about it, some of the yeah, given the very high inflation in, in, in the area, um, there are there's good coverage, uh, there's good, you know, strong covenants. 
but you know the cost of capital has gone up plenty some um as mohammed said it's the fastest increase in 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 rates um in history uh, and so that took a few people offside so i think it's more looking for the the weak hands and the weak properties uh, rather than the whole market but you know given the the shifting cost of capital it would be amazing if there aren't going to be some areas of, of of weakness and you saw that as well with some of the banks today taking slightly higher charges not yet seeing major sources of pain but anticipating there will be Hugh, we've talked about commercial real estate in the cracks that are there. We were talking about this potential more deposit flight. So the big question, how does this end up affecting Fed policy? Uh, look, I, so I think this is so we, we've already seen a very sharp move down, as, as you saw, and obviously a little bit of retracing, uh, as Chrissy just mentioned, um, in the two year, you know, that, that weekend around SDB where we moved, you know, we moved over a point uh, in four, you know, three sessions. So I think there's a, there's a huge move. Um, I think this is one of these things where, you know, th- there's no good historical parallel. But if it rhymes with anything, it rhymes mostly with the 1980s, where we got a very big increase in interest rates, where the banks were the wrong way around. You know, their funding costs were, were very, you know, super complicated with where their, the yields and their assets were. And again, many of the banks were squeezed in the same way. And you saw runs. So look, you know, if I go back to that parallel, I'm not suggesting history repeats, but um, there, you know, within six months of the shock to the bank failure, um, which that was for the bank rescue, I'm sorry, um, you know, rates were coming down, credit was tighter. Uh, but, you know, the other thing I think we learned from there was that once the really big bank had been saved, even though there was another, what, 930 odd regional banks who sadly did fail over the following seven years, you still had the roaring 80s. So I think, you know, we shouldn't be completely doom and gloom. I personally think there will be significant tightness in credit standards. There will be a credit squeeze. I think in the fall, it will be quite uh, high, highly likely to be much, much tougher. Uh, but, but the larger banks navigating this means we just need to make sure um, who's, who's filling the gap that the mid-cap banks are providing. I think the really interesting question here for me is, is that going to be some of the private credit players or some of the other banks, or will there just be a, a lack of availability of credit? Hey, Van Stinas, everybody. Uh, making a reference to the 80s, which if Paul Sweeney and Matt Miller here would make some obscure comment about leg <laughs> warmers or would. something like that. But uh, <laughs> I, I got to say, I, I love that he's talking about the 80s here because, Jess, if you remember, uh, well, you weren't around in the 80s. I, I was born in the 80s. Okay, you were born, but <laughs> I perhaps, was around. <laughs> perhaps not monitoring uh, the banks and the Federal Reserve at the time. Not quite as but, closely. Uh, certainly um, a really important piece of the equation has been that in the 80s, even though you had this extreme tightness from the Federal Reserve, as, as Hugh just pointed out, you also had extreme spending from the fiscal side as well. Think Reagan and the defense budget. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of things to consider there. Hugh Van is the vice chair and partner over at Oliver Wyman, of course, the former senior advisor to the CEO at UBS, as well as the governor of the Bank of England, uh, Mark Carney. We thank you, as always. You can check out his work over at The Economist, at the Financial Times, and he has a very active Twitter feed as well, which I find very interesting. So definitely check that out. Uh, Jess, it, as we talk about, again, the 80s, I wonder how much of the parallel really is there because, look, it is a completely different economy. It, it is. It almost makes me think of whenever everyone tried to compare last year with everything going on with inflation in the 70s, right? right? It's not apples to apples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little bit of a hangover. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.